0: Welcome to Base Camp, a Climbing Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Riley. Thank you for tuning in. I have one last gear episode for you. I was in Las Vegas and ended up stopping by Desert Rock Sports to talk with co-owner Travis Graves. And as the summer temps are approaching and the climbing season at Red Rocks is coming to a close, I wanted to speak to Travis about some of the hot sellers in the shop as well as some of the gear trends that he's been seeing this season. It's also been a wet season, so we ended up talking about some of the conservation issues and safety issues that are associated with climbing on wet rock and how we can educate ourselves and others about, you know, when it is appropriate to climb after it rains. Now, if you've ever met Travis, you know he's full of a lot of great information. So make sure you stay tuned through the end of the show. And just let's get to it. But first, a word from our sponsor. (music) All right, you're locked in, in his lock, your knot looks good, Double back, you got your hands. you got your swings, you got some nuts, ready to rock and roll. Sweet man, climbing. Climb on. This episode is presented by Black Diamond Equipment. The world's best-selling, most trusted cam just got better. Now 10% lighter, these bad boys feature a more modern design that gives climbers everything they love about the old Camelots, with new touch points like a wider trigger for easier handling, and an innovative trigger keeper for compact racking with sizes number 4, number 5, and number 6. For more information about the redesigned Camelot C4s, visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com. I'm with you. All right. oh, got you. oh, man. Nice fall. Uh, that was thin up there. Yeah, he slipped out of it, huh? That was tough. Black Diamond. Live, climb, repeat. Here with Travis Graves, the owner uh, or co owner, I should say, right? Co owner, yep. Over at Desert Rock Sports and Red Rock Climbing Guides and Red Rock Climbing Center. You got it all. Perfect, perfect. And I'd like to start off with the rain since it's just starting to rain here in Vegas right now you know, I've been at the shop when it's rained or the day after, and there's always a flood of climbers coming into the shop saying like, what do I do? Um, can you maybe give me a little bit of information about some of the issues that we have here at Red Rocks with rain and some alternatives to climbing at Red Rocks when it is wet?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, become probably a more noticeable prominent issue over the last several years. I mean, uh, more people are, are coming to Red Rock every year, you know, getting busier like most places. And, uh, well, especially this year, uh, like most places actually across the country, it's been a above average precip year, quite a, quite a lot out here. So we had a lot of, a lot of this winter and, uh, and even recently here, you know, talking with you, Kevin, that it's raining once again in Red Rock and, um, (laughs) it's become a pretty contentious hot subject in, uh, I guess in some areas out there in social media and so forth. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So red rock being, uh, a sandstone climbing area and, and a desert sandstone, uh, climbing area, very dissimilar, unlike southeastern sandstone. It's, uh, it's a pretty porous, soft, uh, rock type. And yeah. so it tends to absorb moisture, uh, very easily. And, mm-hmm. uh, and when it does so it gets, uh, considerably more fragile or or brittle, or weak, or however you want to look at it. So,
0: And about how long does it take to dry out, typically? I yeah, know it depends on how much rain it. Yeah, definitely. And, was, and, and but... I
1: know there is some general statements to try to help people out, out there. It's kind of a, a more generic rule out there, I think you'll find, is 24 to 48 hours. I mm-hmm. think even the Access Fund has kind of got back uh, behind that with some of the literature and information that they have out there, too. But it's really actually not quite that simple. Um, yeah. Just because... You know, when you have rain, I mean, it can rain for a few minutes, it can rain for several hours, it can rain for several days. And then you also have conditions, uh, you know, here in in Red Rock. I mean, you have a a long climbing season here, fall through spring, where the the temperatures are are really good for climbing, whether that be in the sun or the shade. But, you know, the sun versus the shade is a big issue. Uh, You know, if you get a decent amount of precip it's going to take a lot longer for shady climb, shady aspect areas to dry out in the sun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes the 24 to 48 hour rule doesn't really basically cover like the whole sort of situation with drying out. Um, We had a lot of precipitation this winter. And uh, in combined with not only short days, so less sunlight, less exposure uh, to sun, um, you know, you have colder temperatures too working against you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think there were times stretches this winter where some shady climbs in Red Rock based on the frequency, the amount of rain we're getting, I mean, it it was setting up to be like a week or more for some stuff to dry out. Are there signals you
0: can look for?
1: Um, there are somewhat, I mean, it's, you know, kind of another general one is like, if you go to an area and you notice that the rock is discolored or the ground below the base of a climb is discolored, it's probably one of the easier indicators that, you know, things are, you know, are, are obviously still wet and probably not a good idea to climb, but it is tricky because going back to the rock being porous, um, uh I've been involved with the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition for many years and I had a uh, a friend of mine who was helping out uh, a lot with some of the rebolting going on uh, in Red Rock over the years and uh he told me a story it was probably you know roughly about a week after a lot of precip in the Red Rock and he thought he had he had given you know obviously the rock plenty of time to dry cuz it was about a week after yeah. the last rain and he was actually doing some rebolting and he was um he was drilling a new bolt hole and you know he said He probably figured it was maybe somewhere between a centimeter and an inch of the rock. He was drilling into basically wet sand. Wow. So, I mean, obviously it's not something that you can necessarily feel. You know, it's not something you can necessarily see. So, yeah, I mean, the the 24 to 48 hour guideline helps. But um, it's a good thing, you know, that when we do have bad weather that there are obviously sometimes droves of people that come into the shop you know, kind of wondering what to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, when uh, the sandstone here is, is is wet, how long they should wait, what are the alternatives. Um, we can try to guide them in, you know, hey, you probably need to stay off like shady aspect uh, sort of routes, you know, for longer than 48 hours at times. And uh, you know, it's probably more in depth of what they get when they talk to us at the shop than maybe what they'll find on mountain project or, yeah. or some of the other areas out there. Um, but those guidelines that are out there on mountain project and so forth are great that at least it's a starting point. And it, it is mentioned in the guide, some of the local guidebooks and so forth too. And, uh, it is actually, when you pull up the Red Rock homepage, even on mountain project, it does, there is a banner there kind of warning people about wet rock conditions, but, um, but it's challenging because you have people, a, that, don't understand what the composition of sandstone is Mm -hmm. um maybe they do come from a granite background or again climbing in the southeast on the sandstone there where the rock even you know in wet conditions can be quite solid yeah and the other reality is is you know red rock is a world famous destination so people come from all around the world to climb here and very often um we'll have precip here in the red rock and uh you know, the next day it's sunny and really that drying out is just beginning. And then you have people that get off a plane or, or roll into town and it's sunny and they're psyched and they're ready to go climbing, and uh, and they don't know what the prior history is uh, in terms of precip. So they they wouldn't they might not be aware. You know, so it's a it's a contentious issue because with locals and different people they see people out there climbing right after rains and stuff like that and you know it's a big sort of ethical well enforcement you know, is difficult
0: too. Yeah and it's not, you know it, the park's not really getting involved. You can go through the gate while it's raining. Yeah. And they're not going to say anything.
1: Yeah, and it's not something you can enforce obviously in terms of something being illegal. You know, and, and basically to to look at it is like, you know, granted yeah, there are people that are out there that are they're probably aware of sort of the situation with the rock, but they're mm-hmm. on a trip and they have limited climbing days and time, and they're and they're choosing to disregard that, you know, which is unfortunate, you know. And then uh, again, there's a there's a, a segment for sure of people that weren't aware of what maybe just happened in the recent history with the precipitation, or they just don't understand, uh, you know, that the rock can be brittle. So it's not just everybody is, you know, public enemy number one. Oh, totally. Even though sometimes I feel like it gets framed that that way, uh, you know, on and by locals and social media and stuff like that. And it just goes back to, you know, the sort of education that's needed for an area like red rock from, you know, obviously us at the front line at like the store or the climbing gym or the guide service mm-hmm. or on mountain project or the Southern Nevada climbers coalition, you know, access fund. I mean, climbing magazine, even, I mean, just getting the word out about, you know, areas that have more sensitive, you know, issues. So it's, uh, yeah, it's obviously a, it's a complex sort of situation. Um, You know, there is no really simple answer, I don't think, you know, in terms of going back to a 24, 48 hour thing. And and obviously you you can't prosecute for somebody to climbing on, you know, for climbing on wet rock. But the one thing I will, you know, sort of say is that I find how this issue has sort of evolved is that, uh, you know, there are very prominent problems and routes and so forth in Red Rock and, you know, in, in over the years, Red Rock has, you know, become sort of more popular and and more noticeable as, uh, you know, newer routes have been developed and more prominent climbers climb here and share their experiences (laughs) and so forth. And so people, when they look at wet rock and they frame it in sort of an ethical sort of, you know, maybe argument or situation is that they look at it like, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to alter a route. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to tear a key hold off of a route and, you know, change its grade to dramatically make it. So maybe it's not, possible to climb anymore and Mm -hmm. that is definitely you know part of the discussion to have part of the story but what seems what i come across and what seems to really be forgotten here is the safety aspect yeah so so much of the discussion with wet rock is like altering climbs and not actually talking about just the safety of actually being out in red rock on lead you know, potentially breaking a hold, taking a bad lead fall, you know, breaking off, dislodging a large chunk of rock, you know, taking out your belayer or other climbers below you. Um, you know, there's been just like a lot of areas, a lot of bad accidents and and, Uh and lead fall accidents and rock fall accidents. And so you're really heightening that risk too. So it's, uh, that's really the other side of the story. And it's the other side of the story I feel like that kind of gets lost in the fold in this you know, sort of discussion that's been going on recently, which Mm -hmm. is more about like, you know, altering these routes that everybody knows about (laughs) and that sort of thing, rather than really stepping back and looking at it as also very much, if not more importantly, a safety Mm -hmm. issue too.
0: And what are some of the alternative crags around here that might be granite or limestone that you can climb at after it rains?
1: Yeah, we're actually pretty lucky here in in Vegas. I mean, when we get a lot of people stopping into the store or, you know, quite often calling too and it's great that again that people are at least making the effort to ask us as uh as locals to to kind of get the best sort of alternative beta. Vegas is surrounded by and gosh an immense amount of limestone. Mm-hmm. So um there are depending on the time of year there usually are many many crags that you can go climbing at and granted it's limestone and it's going to be sport climbing based for for that. So, you know, if you're getting rained out of Red Rock or even snowed out of Red Rock at times, you know, it may not be like you're going to easily transition to, you know, some other area to go climb multi-pitch trad. But, um, there's a a lot of limestone. There's a lot of climbers who now live in Las Vegas that are, that are passionate sport climbers that actually climb on limestone year round that actually don't climb in Red Rock. (laughs) Well, just because (laughs) the amount of limestone that's around here. So I think that's pretty surprising. It's becoming more known uh, throughout kind of the climbing community and world. But it's actually kind of interesting to uh, explain that to people and have them go check out these areas. And they, and they weren't coming here either knowing that there were limestone options or maybe they'd kind of heard about it. They weren't planning on it. And then they got kind of pushed in that direction, you know, and are pleasantly surprised. So, um, I mean, if it's not actually precipitating to where, you know, you're forced into taking a rest day or climbing in a gym or, Obviously, gosh, doing all the other things you can do in Vegas, and you and you want to actually get out and get some pitches in. Yeah, there are there are a lot of really good options, and there's even a bit of granite locally that you can boulder on, and uh, even a bit of trad to do. That's mm-hmm. you know pretty much in the immediate vicinity. But you know the other thing about Vegas too is it's not very long of a drive to go to some place like Joshua Tree if you need to, you know, spend a day or two somewhere else uh, while the sandstone here dries out. We're uh, you know we're kind of at the epicenter of uh, a lot of surrounding climbing areas whether it be limestone or granite so um you know whether you want to just stay in town and and sample some of the local stuff or do like a long day trip or even looking at doing an overnight somewhere Mm -hmm. and coming back um you know i tell people i'm like there's a lot of options like if you know if it's obviously not precipitating there's no reason to get shut down by climbing just because it might not be safe or 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 wise to climb in Red Rock while, you know, the sandstone in Red Rock dries out. There's
0: still, you know, obviously a lot of other climbing. Mm -hmm. Great. And I want to talk gear because we just published our gear guide and the season here is kind of wrapping up, at least the winter season over here at Red Rocks. Specifically, I'd love to talk about maybe some of the the best-selling gear at the store this season or some trends that maybe you saw as far as climbing gear goes.
1: Yeah, I think... uh... You know, we, we're in an area where there's, uh, which is, I guess just should say, makes Red Rock incredibly unique, probably unique not only for America, North America worldwide, is that you actually have a lot of bouldering here. You have a lot of sport climbing and you have a lot of trad and especially multi-pitch trad. Mm-hmm. A lot of climbing destinations you go to, I always feel like have one or two out of the three, but never you know, kind of all of the above. Uh-huh. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so it's obviously we, you know, do offer and sell a wide spectrum of gear when it comes to styles of shoes and harnesses and, and your protection and so forth to kind of, a, you know, really accommodate all those different aspects of climbing. But, um, you know, I think there's some pretty interesting new gear out there, definitely some trends, like you said, and, uh, you know, just thinking about it, I kind of like wanted to start off, I guess, with something that I, I personally think is kind of a little bit, sort of funny or interesting, and that's um, what I've seen over the years happen with crack climbing gloves mm-hmm. and in uh, ballet glasses. Yeah. Um. So both of those products have actually been around for a number of years now. I think uh-huh. belay glasses came into the U.S. a number of years ago from a, a guy importing them from Germany. Actually, before they, you know, became more, I guess. Widespread in terms of different companies manufacturing them and offering them, but um, mm-hmm. and with the crack gloves too. Basically, both of those items for years, when um, we started carrying them, and, and and obviously continue to do so, is that people kind of thought they were a little gimmicky and kind of ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. and you, you maybe know, could put me and, in that, yeah. And it's like, and I and and, and it, I was you know kind of curious or had you know my questions or apprehension at first, and I think it's like getting over this sort of like you know, older mindset, even if it's your new climber, you're like, well, you know, tape gloves and, uh, you know, belay glasses are just kind of these, like, what are they like something you can lay on your couch and watch TV or something (laughs) like that. But, um, yeah. So I I feel like it was just like not too long ago in the recent past that, you know, it was like a, a switch flipped and now, you know, I feel like they've kind of become this accepted norm where mm-hmm. more and more people are, are seeking them out and realizing that, you know, they obviously have a lot of utility. And, uh, so I, it's like one of those things, I guess, that's, you know, becoming more widely accepted and not really snickered at anymore yeah. or whatever. So, um, which is a good thing. So that's, you know, I always think that's kind of cool how, you know, something like that has kind of changed and, um, you know, those are very, very popular items and, you know, and out here too. And, uh, so, yeah. So, anyways, that's kind of an interesting sort of uh, the script has flipped on those two two uh-huh. items over the years from what I've seen. Um, and then uh, we were talking about this uh, just the other day, actually, to bring up another piece of gear um, is, uh, well, and can reference like the Sterling hollow block, uh-huh. for example. Um, and, and Sterling makes a, basically like an auto block sling out of tech fiber to back up your rappel and it's uh it's an alternative to just buying your own five or six millimeter cord and tying up your own prusik or autoblock for backing up your rappel Mm -hmm. um and i feel it's been something that you i guess i've seen or maybe a a trend that's changed as more and more people have become educated with safer practices in climbing is that Mm -hmm. more often even newer climbers and older climbers alike are starting to to just realize that you know it's a good idea to to back up your rappel in in situations obviously whether that be single pitch sport climbing or trad we obviously have a lot of multi-pitch climbing out here in red rock where you're doing long rappels and questioning whether or not you're going to reach the anchor or find the anchor so you know of course there's other things like tying knots in the end of your ropes but um but yeah, those uh, a lot of people seek out the Sterling Hollow Block in particular, you know, or, or quite often we're selling you know sections of cord for people to tie their tie their own. So um, you know, I think that's obviously a super positive trend because um, we talked about how a lot of accidents in climbing happen on rappel.
0: Yeah, actually. So, absolutely.
1: Um, and I always like to frame this with some of customers and, and definitely with my friends is that uh, in climbing you know, if you're obviously taking the time to, to be open and receptive to your mentors or your teachers or guides, or, you know, if you're reading material is you're really thinking about obviously safe practices and, and being redundant, especially, you know, in climbing, uh, you know, obviously by backing up your pill, but, um, when we go to build anchors, whether it be top rope anchors or, or equalized gear anchors on trad routes or multi-pitch, like we're thinking about, you know, redundancy and, and how can we make our systems as safe as possible mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And and we think about these things very much in the realm of going upward yeah like it's all about like going up and you know obviously topping out and and completing your climb and hopefully being successful and sending and everything like that and and being safe while doing it and uh it's funny how you can get to the top of your multi-pitch climb or you can get to the top of your single pitch route and uh and you know maybe you got to build an anchor and and somebody else is going to top rope it, or you, you got to bring your, your, your partner or followers up and, and you're thinking about all these things, but then, you know, you get to the, the time where it's time to descend. And, uh, really the whole idea of like redundancy and everything is just out the window. Yeah. So it's like, now you're on rappel and you know, you're just relying on the fact that you need to maintain control of the rope by squeezing your hand tight around the rope and keeping it in a A breaking position coming out of your repel device. And uh, it's really, there's no backup. So um, if you're using most tube style devices or that sort of thing, um, you know, if you were to lose your control of the rope for whatever reason, I mean, you could get hit with some rock, you could get lightheaded and pass out, you could repel you know, over a roof or slip and, Mm -hmm. you know, smack your hand uh, against the rock or something like that, that cause you to lose control. There's numerous sort of things that could happen to cause you to lose control. And once you lose control. Yeah. You're not getting it back. You're not getting it back. You're going to burn yourself pretty bad. Yeah. So it's, uh, (laughs) so it's, it's just kind of interesting how we're so worried about redundancy in one arena
0: of climbing and then yeah. we're so not concerned about it. So it seems very It just feels like you're done. You're done through the yeah. dangerous part. But <laughs> in reality, like you said, most accidents happen uh on the way down during the descent. Cleaning anchors you hear all the time. People being lowered off the end of the ropes. You yeah. know, that's when most of the accidents happen, not, you know, leading some real scary pitch. Yeah.
1: And I think it's like being more people being aware of that. I just so my my funny way to To poke at this kind of glaring inconsistency or or really this imbalance that exists is like, I always like to to challenge people. I'm like, well, you know, if you really don't feel the need to be redundant or to back up your repel, I mean, you might as well just be consistent and really not worried Mm -hmm. about redundancy when you're building your (laughs) anchor. So I'm like, I always tell track climbers, I'm like, just go up and, you know, throw one nut in and, you know, throw a sling on it and bring your partner up and, you know, who cares, right, about being redundant because you're probably not going to be redundant on rappel, you know. So anyways, it's like just more of to try to push people to think about like, you know, Maybe they should try to think about safety and redundancy, you know, across the whole spectrum of climbing. So
0: you brought up the Sterling Hollow Block. What's the benefit of a Hollow Block over just standard six mil cord? Yeah, so it's cut in a pretty convenient length
1: for actually. you know, basically wrapping the rope hollow in hollow block, uh, or sorry, auto block fashion. It's, and so I was, I mentioned that it was kind of made out of a, a tech fiber that is actually has a high heat melting resistance. There's uh-huh. already a lot of, a lot of friction that's generated when you're sliding an auto block down a rope on rappel. Um, so that's actually, not only does that kind of wear and tear happen on your uh, auto block, you know, uh, accessory cord material, but it's also happening to the sheath of your rope too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hollow box kind of Interesting in that the first part of the name is hollow. There's actually no core in the hollow block. Sure. The tech fiber is actually, not only does it have a high sort of heat resistance, melting resistance, but it's a very strong fiber too. So it actually doesn't have a core. And I always kind of explain it when you handle it. It's kind of like the old Chinese finger cuffs. Like when you kind of like, you know. It feels a lot like that. Yeah. So it actually, so the, the way that it's woven like that without a core is that it actually slides along the rope um, quite nicely, but then actually will bind up quickly if need to be too. So, Interesting. Um, so, and that's, spe- but, you know, a sense it's, it's pretty ergonomic, I guess I'd say in that way too, in addition to providing, uh, you know, obviously the, the higher sort of resistance to heat friction, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But, uh, yeah, obviously that's, a uh, something I've seen that more and more people are at least you know, seem to be more conscientious about like, you know, having something to back up the rappel. So that's mm-hmm. a, obviously a big positive that I've seen as more and more people are, are, are doing that.
0: And what about on the hard goods side, seeing any hot sellers? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think
1: I am kind of impressed with myself and, and have kind of changed up some of the gear I used as, uh, is the kind of bulletproof line or the, or the, the use of steel and climbing gear that, uh, the Edelrid has kind of Uh, I guess, gone to with certain carabiners and and devices in the past uh, few years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as climbers, we're obviously, you know, like most sort of sports, we think about weight, you know, like we want light you know light is right light is better that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and you know and obviously steel anything in climbing is like uh, you know like it's heavy it's clunky (laughs) industrial uh, yeah you know it's like you know are you gonna do that as training weight or something like that bring around (laughs) a bunch of steel carabiners with you but um you know obviously with climbing gyms everywhere and then uh in you know especially at sport cliffs a lot of sport cliffs that have like perma draws or fixed draws, like there's a lot of steel components and, you know, no doubt it's because, you know, one big thing with steel is it's much longer lasting than aluminum when it comes to wear. So you have this durability aspect. There's also a lot less heat buildup with steel too, especially if you're thinking about like a, a repel device, Uh, Mm -hmm. like when you do a long repel, you're your aluminum carabiner and your device can get quite hot, you know, to the touch. But yeah, the, the you know the trade-off has always been just the the clunky, heavy aspect uh, to steel. So it's interesting that Edelrid has really found a way to try to give you the best of both worlds and and create like sort of hybrid style uh, carabiners and with their bulletproof carabiners. So they actually have an aluminum carabiner with a, with a steel basket where the, the rope bearing surface is. So you're trying to realize the benefits of steel with the longer wear and the less heat buildup and, uh, but not be penalized with a bunch of extra weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get something that honestly is better for the environment because you won't be replacing your carabiners as frequently, whether it be your belay carabiner or, uh, carabiners on your quick draw. So a lot of people, if they just want to, you know, get into it, they might buy a couple of quick draws or a, a couple of, uh, you know, bent gates to, to basically build anchor draws out of, uh, the, the steel carabiners or or, the bulletproof, the, the aluminum steel carabiners. So they can actually have, you know, those carabiners in, in areas where you get excessive amounts of wear, which is the draws at the top of climbs, especially if you top rope afterwards or a lot of times, even the first bolt of a climb, um, the rope bearing carabiner on the first bolt
0: there's a safety story there as well because you as you mentioned those baskets they can um get a quite a bit of wear and then you have a groove and that can become sharp and cut a rope a lot easier yeah
1: and actually so that's going to be you know obviously on the you know extreme end for sure and obviously there's been some documented cases uh with this now but the other thing that's kind of interesting and this goes with edelrid you know to note too makes um kind of the the jewel line with the jewels mm-hmm. and the mega jewels and now the gigajoule that are uh incorporate steel into the devices too to kind of complete the steel story so again a lot less heat build up and um a lot less grooving with your device and, and of course that's going to be much better for your rope and potentially the longevity of your rope too and so you know we're going back to being here in red rock we we're in the desert southwest and we have red sand here you know, it's like when things get dirty, they kind of turn red. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you go other places. I'm from Vermont originally and things get dirty. They're muddy Brown. Mm-hmm. However, no matter where you climb, when your ropes get dirty, they always seem to be pretty black
0: gray yeah. and black.
1: So I think it's a big sort of clue right there that your dirtiness is not coming from your rope running across the rock or, you know, sitting in the ground off of a Rope tarp or something like that, but majority of why your rope is dirty is all the aluminum and anodization coming off of your carabiners and your belay device. So uh, by the sort of incorporating steel into these systems, um, you know, again, you know, your rope can last a lot longer, but your rope can actually stay a lot cleaner, a lot longer, as well as your hands, especially if you don't use belay gloves. I mean, you get down to the end of a climbing day and your hands are all black and again it's it's coming off of your care beaters. It's not coming off the rock or mm-hmm. or your ropes picking it up off the ground. And I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, that. And I mean there's a whole other discussion there too, I guess, for some people when you think about like the bioaccumulation of heavy metals, you know, if you're sitting around and you climb off and outside and your hands are constantly dirty from heavy metals and all this stuff that your body's sort of ingesting and absorbing well, like yeah. over time. You know, you can imagine over a long climbing career you know what that must maybe be like because i know when i'm down on the ground and i get done a route or whatever like that i'm going to reach over and and grab some snacks or whatever like that you know and i'm going to be handling food and stuff with my my bare dirty hands and all that like all the time or whatever you know probably not washing my hands till the end of the climbing day so there's just some other stuff out there that obviously yeah. i think the the steel story is 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 really interesting and and edelred's making or. Causing I guess to rethink a discussion when it comes to steel and climbing rather than just being more in sort of fixed permanent applications Mm -hmm. um you know I think there's a lot of benefits uh uh when it comes to you know whether or not you want to use one of their belay devices but at least with some of the the carabiners like I said to kind of make your rope last longer keep things sort of less dirty, you know, the safety aspect, you know, and uh, the health aspect maybe, but, you know, and of course they kind of frame it too, like just in terms of an environmental aspect, you know, making something that is not going to be as disposable or, you know, as frequently basically needing to be replaced, you know, which is a good thing. So less worn out carabiners getting, you know, tossed or whatever.
0: So So every season you end up selling me a few new pieces of gear that you talk me into (laughs) and just today... You sold me on a dynamic uh, cord for anchor building and other miscellaneous things, but um, up on your wall, there's quite a few slings and dynamic cords that brands are coming out with. Can you tell me a little bit about that trend?
1: Yeah, and I think it's going to, it's somewhat of a, this is a newer trend, I think. And I think it's something that people shopping around for climbing gear, you know, maybe this summer as more areas are coming into season, and even though we're kind of, going out of our busy season here in Red Rock and, and moving forward into, uh, you know, late 2019 and 2020 is uh company starting to embrace basically, yeah, like more dynamic sort of slings, anchoring, sort of... Uh, Personal anchors. Yeah. Uh, kind of maybe at least providing an alter- alternative, right? You know, I won't say like moving away from to... The use of maybe Spectra and Dyneema, which is so incredibly super static mm-hmm. out there. And obviously with, with items that are super static in certain applications, they can really amplify the forces that um, are generated on your gear and, and and obviously go back to you as the climber. But um, so you're starting to see uh, more personal anchor style systems, whether, I mean, Petzl makes the Connect uh, adjustable um you know, I guess you can look at it as like almost like an adjustable, you know, daisy or or tether or something like that that is made with dynamic climbing rope. That you can actually use as a primary uh, anchoring positioning device, unlike a adjustable daisies from other companies in the past which aren't full strength and you, mm-hmm. you can only use for positioning you can't use it by itself um due to low sort of breaking strengths but um so you get like a, a robust you know sort of dynamic climbing rope that is going to enter a more dynamic element into the system um but also probably going to last more or, or better or longer when it comes to just uh, abrasion also so you know uh, petzl and camp actually Uh, recently came out with their sort of dynamic uh, tether I guess you'd say I think which is called the swing I think if I'm remembering correctly and I know Metolius is going to be coming out with a like basically a dynamic rope version of their personal anchor system oh cool um, I think which might be next fall or, or next spring when that's kind of out normally you know, for sale. And then uh, Bial has actually started making different lengths uh, in common lengths to 60, 120 centimeter, 24, 48 inch slings out of uh, climbing rope, as well as uh, what you bought today actually was a, a seven mil um, cordelette that's more of a dynamic rope construction than normal accessory cord. So yeah, just, I guess, you know, going back and thinking about adding more dynamic elements into your anchoring sort of situation to, to try to, you know, minimize these high forces that can be, that can be generated. I mean, there is a, a trade-off there too of these things, you know, dynamic climbing rope is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bulkier item than, you know, some of these skinny uh, Dyneema slings. Um, but also, you know, better to use in certain scenarios. I think one of the, the big things out there. I guess this, you know, happened years ago with uh, when Metellius actually introduced the the personal anchor system was to kind of give people uh, a safer alternative to to using daisy chains, which were not developed necessarily for anchoring positioning, but were kind of perceived as being convenient for that. So, um, and they have their safety issues and their strength issues. And, and so, uh, you know, Matoyas, I think it started that. And obviously that was kind of a cascading effect. And now most companies offer, you know, some sort of product to help you tether, anchor yourself in and, and, and have it be somewhat adjustable, you know, which is, which is obviously great. But now... It's getting people educated. Um, I think what happens a lot is you, especially with these skinnier, super static, dynama spectra slings, you see people girth-hitching them to their belay loop or their tie-in points of their harness and just using it as a light and simple way to anchor themselves at the top of a a route to, you know, clean the anchor or anchor themselves in if they're repelling a multi-pitch route. And really, slings like that weren't designed for that sort of use. As, As convenient as they may seem visually, you know, they're lightweight, they're... They're compact, um, you know. They weren't. They weren't designed for that application. They, you know, it's like the Dyneema Spectra slings in general. They they are super static. They have a low melting point. They're skinny, so uh, the the friction and abrasion that's that can happen can can compromise them pretty quickly, comparative to a, a normal nylon sling or some of these now dynamic rope slings that you're you're seeing. So, um, you know, they're great for. Uh, attaching to a piece of a trad gear or a, you know extending a sling out on a bolt where the rope is going to be clipped to one end and, and the rope is acting as the dynamic component should the climber take a fall even a slip at the anchor for example you have a dynamic element in the system but now people are kind of using these skinny of slings without the rope in the system when they're connecting themselves to uh to an anchor when there is no no rope and uh you know can actually generate some some pretty high forces or, you know, sitting there and running the rope back and forth across these skinny slings as they're flaking the rope on a multi-pitch route or something like that. So it's, uh, again, I think a practice that with a little bit of education can kind of get people hopefully to move away from just, uh, again, I guess, you know, think about being safer, being more redundant, you know, some of the, uh, things we kind of talked about in general, as we started this conversation.
0: Is there a product out there that, any climber coming to Red Rock should have in their kit
1: that you can think of, (laughs) you know, by default, that would be the guidebook actually. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the most popular item that we have the shop and it's, uh,
0: always seems to sell out whenever you need one. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It's, uh, the guidebook for Red Rock is, is very well done. We're lucky to have a a, a very talented, um, author, very knowledgeable author. He self published the book. It's, it's been a very much a labor of love in Red Rock. Uh, you know, I, I talk to people that, you know, it's almost like I guess in this day and age of like, our guidebooks going to be dead soon. You know, is everything going to be online? Is everything going to be, be digital? You know, is everybody just going to be using Mountain Project or some other platform as their, as their guidebook with their smartphones or something uh-huh. like that?
0: And hasn't and happened yet.
1: It hasn't happened yet. And I mean, the guidebook. I always tell people it's like the pictures, the big clear pictures are more than half the battle here in Red Rock. Um, I feel like you know mountain project is so useful and and it works well so many areas um that maybe aren't as involved and intricate as red rock when it comes Mm -hmm. to not only identifying the crags the routes at crags but just getting to the crags um we have a lot of you know basically like cross country or you know hiking across um rocks and areas where you're not on defined trails and it's uh it's complicated. And even, even with a guidebook, it's still easy to get turned around that sort of thing. But I think people learn the limitations of just trying to stare down at a a smaller picture on their, on their smartphone. But um, the guidebook is, is no doubt, you know, the, the, the big thing in the shop, but um, yeah, you know, going back, it's just like, there is a, there is a basically a a wide array of climbers that come here because so many people come here for bouldering. So many people come here for sport climbing. So people, you know, obviously come here for the multi-pitch, routes and a lot of the long, multi, moderate multi-pitch routes, which is what initially made Red Rock sort of famous or, mm-hmm. or put it on the map as a, as a prominent destination. So, uh, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, we try to have a wide array and spectrum of gear um, to really meet the needs or the desires, I guess you should say, of a lot of uh, of different climbers, you know? Um, you know, whether you like, you know, some sort of specific aspect of climbing or like it all, obviously, which you can do everything here.
0: Well, maybe a poop bag.
1: Oh yeah. The rest stop bags. Actually. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> um, I guess it's been for a number of years now, the Southern Nevada climbers coalition started a wag bag, poop bag project in the red rock and in other areas do it great too. I mean, for, uh, friends of Indian Creek have been doing it mm-hmm. for a long time. Human waste, um, at red rock, like pretty much every climbing area now is, you know, more climbers everywhere at pretty much every, every crag. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, human waste is an issue. And for many years, uh, the majority of the fundraising for the nonprofit, the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition, involved basically like raising money so we could basically buy and fill these five wag bag dispensers that we built. And the BLM allowed us to place out in Red Rock in high traffic sensitive areas. And uh, it's great that Obviously, that option exists because, you know, there are bathrooms at some trailheads in Red Rock, but not all. And obviously, when you're at some crags, you're not really close or easy to get back to the bathroom. But it got to the point where the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, which is the management agency for Red Rock, which is a national conservation area, actually realized that there was such a positive benefit to this and, and saw... Um, that it was something worthy that they actually stepped in and have basically shouldered the majority of the financial burden now. Oh, that's so awesome! On, so good on the BLM yeah, it's uh, for that. However, like I mentioned, is that there are only five dispensers that we have in Red Rock, and uh, um, a lot of people rolling into town, starting out their uh, their trip, do come through the shop to yeah get guidebooks and you know other supplies and so forth. So we kind of act as the sixth sort of dispenser, I guess I'd say, for for wag bags. We actually don't sell wag bags at the shop, but we have a donation box. So we have a supply of wag bags on hand, which actually helps people get them for basically at cost. It's just donating Uh to cover the cost of the wag bags. They're not, basically they're paying half as much as they would if they would normally purchase them off the wall as a normal, uh, item. But, um, yeah, obviously it's nothing that the store or the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition or anything is it's, it's not an attempt to make money. Obviously Mm -hmm. it's just an idea that a lot of people right there to start their trip can grab one or a couple and keep them in their pack, have them on hand. They might not be going to an area in Red Rock. Um, Red Rock is with, with one of the five dispensers, Red Rock is such a massive area. So many multi-pitch routes, you know, deep into canyons with long approaches and areas that are not near one of these dispensers that are, that are out in the conservation area that they at least have a shot of, of having one, uh, you know, with them, um, if they're venturing into those other areas. And, and it's something that, you know, maybe climbing shops in, you know, other areas that are, that are kind of affiliated or tied in with kind of a, a prominent climbing, uh, sort of location destination would maybe consider doing, it doesn't really, you know, take much effort to, me, you know, if, if there is a, a local climbing organization or nonprofit to to order some boxes of those wag bags and maybe offer them up at the at their kind of retail establishment mm-hmm. donation, yeah, and just get these these bags into more kind of climbers' hands and their <laughs> yeah. packs and stuff like that or whatever. you know, it's like, you know, we went through a lot of we've been going through a lot of wag bags in a year before the, the BLM kind of helped us out and kicked in financially. And it was like, you know, I'm sure people were, grabbing several at a time because they were heading to the valley afterwards to climb el cap or maybe hikers were out going Ooh, you know i'm going on a backpacking trip and you know and, it, and at first it seemed like oh man like you know people should be more on the honor system and not be be grabbing maybe so many bags as once but honestly it's like if they're grabbing them and they're going to be using them and, you know that's mm-hmm. anything's a positive in terms of cutting back on waste. Sure. So i think you just got to look at it you know that way and uh and hopefully financially it you know, it makes sense. So, um, yeah, it's actually been like a cool little thing to, to offer and, uh, you know, just kind of wish we'd been doing it a lot longer actually.
0: Yeah. I certainly, I've been in a couple situations where I've had to use them. And ever since I never go climbing without one <laughs> Yeah, because it can be a bad situation if you're, if you don't have one in the pack.
1: Yeah. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I always have one in my pack. I always keep a couple extra in my vehicle. Uh, <laughs> you know, another little tidbit that we have in Red Rock and maybe in some other areas is like, You have all these, like, you know, doggy bag dispensers at trailheads Mm -hmm. in a lot of places. I've pooped in one of those. And it's, well, (laughs) what what they're great great for, I always tell everybody, I'm (laughs) like, hey, if you're at one of these trailheads, just, even if you don't have a dog, as a climber, like, you know, take a couple, a few of those bags and keep them in your pack. Because, you know, if you have wrappers for food or you're Uh taking, you know, tape off of your fingers or, I mean, they make perfect little garbage bags they to have with you. And, you know, it's a whole other discussion about tape waste and, and different sort of uh, garbage sort of situations at crags these days or whatever mm-hmm. like that. Cause you didn't have a, Ziploc bag or a plastic bag or something with you. So it's just an easy little thing to do. Is like if you're at a trailhead and there's a wag bag, just it's just like, hey, grab a couple of those, keep them in the pack. They'll probably come in handy for you or, you know, somebody you're with. It's kind of just a little tip that I, uh, that I give people, you know. So it's actually, I guess going back to crack gloves too, right? It's like one of the benefits of crack gloves, right? Is that it kind of cuts down on tape waste if you're not, you know, making sort of Mm -hmm. tape tape crock gloving gloves constantly. So I don't think we even mentioned that.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Travis. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, that's the show. want to thank Travis Graves for his time. If you're in Las Vegas, make sure you stop by Desert Rock Sports and say hello. Also want to thank our sponsor, Black Diamond Equipment. Make sure to check out their new C4 cams at BlackDiamondEquipment.com. Also, today's theme music was provided by Small Houses at smallhouses.band. All right, everyone. See you at the next base camp.